Tony, um, thanks for picking me up, but uh, what the heck, man? The, the car seat's wet. The floor mat's wet. Like, what'd you do? Pull a Keith Moon? Yeah, no, no. I didn't drive it into a pool or anything. Uh, you know, nothing that exciting. I left the windows down and it was raining. So sorry about that, man. Are you sure that the brakes are okay? You didn't drive it into the lake or anything? Or? No, no. But you know what? Speaking of driving vehicles into uh, bodies of water, we're going to be talking about that today, aren't we? Hopefully dry. Okay. I'm going to go get the air, uh, you know, some kind of hair dryer and blow the sea dry, okay? Okay, that sounds good. Yeah, we're going to make some stops. Uh, well, I guess the first one will be 1967. And of course, we'll be talking about a little uh, Keith Moon and uh, lots to talk about with that guy. But uh, are you ready for the road trip? Uh, as soon as the seats dry, yes. Okay. <laughs> well, let's dry it off and then let's go. Maps? Check. Snacks? Double check. Tunes. Check. I'm Tony Stewart. I'm Aaron Badgley. And we are cruising the rock and roll highway in our way back music machine. Are you ready, my friend? I sure am. I have the feeling this is going to be the start of a great adventure. Kind of a magical mystery tour. Somehow I knew you were going to say that. So, you know, there are certain people that you just associate with being over-the-top rock stars, and Keith Moon is one of them, and uh, we're going to be talking about perhaps the most famous Keith Moon story of all, but to do that, we're going to have to head to August 23rd, 1967, and this uh, this should be fun to talk about. Can you punch that in? I <laughs> sure can. Oh, and uh, how's the seat? Is it uh, dry now? Much, much, much better. All good. All right, let's head to the uh, 23rd of August, 1967. You know, there are certain events in rock history that kind of define what a rock star's behavior is. It becomes the stereotypical uh, bad boy image. And I think this is one of them. This is certainly one of them. The the infamous Keith Moon basically driving a car into a, a swimming pool. Um I mean, but, but this guy is notorious for destroying things, right? Well, yeah. I mean, uh, the swimming pool, of course, he was uh, just enjoying a wild birthday party and he got a little inebriated, well, more than a little inebriated, but the party got out of control. The police were called to uh, put an end to it. And uh, Keith, deciding he wanted to avoid the boys in blue, he decided to sneak outside and he got into a Lincoln Continental and he attempted to make his getaway and... Uh, he released the handbrake, unfortunately, and began rolling towards the pool. And he, in typical Keith Moon fashion, you know, just waited for it to uh, roll. And it crashed through the fence and went into the water. But this might be one of the most famous rock and roll stories of all time, don't you think? Yeah, I mean, he was so drunk. He didn't even know he was releasing the handbrake. I'm sure he thought he was putting it into gear, you know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, yeah, this is this is this is the. I mean, his the stories of Keith Moon to this day. I'm sure there's still people. There's there's small furry animals who are shaking in their boots when his name comes up because he really he did a lot of damage. And certainly, I mean, he certainly kept the uh, contractors in, in in the world busy. Did he not? Well, that's it. And he had a love of uh, explosives, and <laughs> he loved blowing up toilets in hotels you know, I, in hotel rooms. I didn't know that. I didn't know that until I did the research. I was, wow. 
well, I'd heard those stories, but I didn't know just how much he enjoyed it, you know. Uh, but according to estimates, they said about $500,000 of damage during his brief career to hotel room plumbing and toilets. I mean, it is unbelievable. The, the, the one story I loved is when he was playing, and I don't know what hotel this was at, but he's playing the new Who album on tape. Oh, side of it. I know, <laughs> you know this story. This. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. This is fantastic. And, and the hotel manager <laughs> knocks on the door and comes in and goes, you know, there's a complaint about noise coming from your room. And he goes, excuse me, I have to do something. And he goes into the bathroom, drops a stick of dynamite, blows up the bathroom, basically, toilet and all, Came's out, comes out and he reportedly said, that, my dear boy, is a noise. What they heard was the who. What <laughs> <laughs> oh, <geez. laughs> I mean, what a story, right? But it just encapsulates, like you say, the whole bad boy rock and roll image. I mean, I, you know, he lived it right until his death. Okay, but I have a question, Tony. I have a question. Where does one go to buy dynamite? Like, how would he happen to have dynamite in his room where he always had explosives? What yeah, the heck? He, had, he had cherry bombs, as far as I can tell, yeah. which were well, widely... That's fair, but- you know, and, and a, but I think he would put de- like a like a case of cherry bombs in a toilet. I think that's how he did it. Um, Unbelievable. But he always had them on him. And he, he had other eccentricities as well, right? Like he, uh, you know, he liked throwing things out of hotel room windows and he trashed his friends' houses. And uh, another famous story is, uh, again, I'm not sure which hotel, but... Uh, they were leaving the hotel and he says oh i forgot something we need to go back and they drove back and he went up to the hotel room and grabbed the television and threw it out the window into the into the hotel swimming pool and then just left right that's that was keith moon and uh you know very uh influential drummer uh tragic about his substance abuse issues but um certainly entertaining i'm sure if you were a journalist covering him at the time would have been always a story his first job though was as a radio repairman and i have this image of him going well the radio won't work and just blowing it up in the kitchen you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly and i guess he was fascinated with that stuff right from a young age right so i mean that was a lifelong love affair with explosives and <laughs> do you think do you think um animal sorry animal from the muppets is based on keith moon you know, I, the drummer animal uh, I think he must be, right? Because the whole kicking down the drum set and everything too, because that's Keith Moon, right? That's yeah. He started doing that. And uh, and uh, now supposedly, I don't know if this is true or not, but supposedly his kicking down of the drum set was more carefully done than people thought. And so they would go through tons of pedals and things like that, but the drums would emerge fairly unscathed sometimes. So hard to say though, you know? It's interesting that he's um, Ringo Starr's kid's godfather, Zach, for sure. And Ringo never wanted his kids to be drummers, although two of them are drummers now. And he, Keith Moon, gave Zach an old kit that Keith Moon had. So he gave him an old kit that he had used. And Zach Starkey, to this day, still says that that's what got him started drumming. And he would go on to drum for The Who. Isn't that interesting, eh? And, you know, Keith Moon was also, he was hired as a, as a replacement drummer. He was really young when he got hired yeah. by the Who. He was For seven, the Who, you mean? Yeah. yeah. He was 17 years old. And yeah. uh, he never got, they, during interviews, you know, he said, like, he never actually got a formal offer 
to join the who they just he he was there and he stuck around and he said like i was you know a replacement for 15 years <laughs> that's an extended contract but uh i think people would be surprised to know that his favorite band was the beach boys he was nuts about the beach boys isn't that I'm, interesting avid fan of them you know and i have his only solo album called both sides of the moon uh, great title and he does a cover of Don't Worry Baby on it. And he does some, uh, you know, Barbara Ann and stuff. He's very, very influenced by the Beach Boys, uh, the harmonies and all that kind of stuff. Not a bad album. Sadly, he only made the one because it's actually quite good. Well, yeah, because he died so young, right? And, um, you know, like I said, he uh, couldn't fight his demons any longer. And uh, very tragic. I don't think he fought his demons, Tony. I think he welcomed them with open arms. Like, yeah, I think, I, I think you're right, you know. And, you know uh, he, him and John Bonham from Led Zeppelin, same thing. Yeah, there I was mean, no way those guys were going to see old age for sure. No. And, no, and I, I don't know that they wanted to. No, I don't think they wanted to either. But uh, on this day in uh, 1967, August 23rd, was the infamous uh, pool crashing incident. Uh, so... What was on the charts, though? That's what I'm curious about. Well, this was the, the beginning of Psychedelia, the Summer of Love at 67. A lot of uh, There's a lot of American San Francisco bands. There's Jefferson Airplane with Surrealistic Pillow at number five. The Doors at number four with The Doors. Number three is The Rolling Stones and their album Flowers. Two, and this is a sad story, number two album is The Monkees Headquarters. And, and for those of you who are Monkees fans, I am. This was the album that they wrote, played on, produced. It was all monkeys. There was no, there was some studio people, but it was really their album. And they thought it was going to be huge. And it entered the charts. It got up to number one for one week. And then it stayed number two for the rest of the summer behind Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band by The Beatles. It was on number one this, this week in 1967. Can you imagine, though? Like you just do this album, you're proving to the world that you can actually play an instrument. And he just released it the same month that the Beatles were his pack. <laughs> <laughs> oops, oops. That's oops, right. And all oops. of a sudden, the whole music changed forever, you know, that when that came out. Boy. Oh, yeah. That's, that's a heck of an album. I, I, and funny, because when I was putting this the, the playlist together, I just remembered how great that album is. And I listened to Day in the Life again, which is my favorite Beatles song. And whew, so, uh, it's, so it's incredible. I listened to uh, all the way through Pepper again about a month ago. And... Uh, yeah, every time. Well, that's brilliant. Brilliant. I hear something new every time, to be honest with you. Yeah, me so. too. Me too. Now, uh, the next part of our journey for this rock and roll road trip is going to, we're going to head back 10 years, but we're going to head to, uh, we're going to head to August, sorry, yeah, August 24th, 1963. And we're going to be talking about one of my idols and uh, someone we both admire a lot, actually. But can you punch it in? This is August 24th, 1963. <laughs> And we're, oh, wait a minute. Ah, we're ready to go now. Here we are in Motown in 1963, August 24th. And something incredible has happened, Tony. A, a, a 12-year-old has hit number one. But, but there's something special about that album. You want to talk a wee bit about it? Well, of course, we're talking about one of my all-time idols. It is Stevie Wonder. And uh, he was billed as Little Stevie Wonder, the 12-year-old uh, genius. And he also had the number one single. So 
it was, you know, the first time that that had happened, right? The first artist ever to score a U.S. number one album and a single in the same week. Uh, he had the, the single was called Fingertips Part 2. And it was also the first live recording, right, to make number one? Yeah, incredible. I'm surprised that Elvis never had his number one single and album at the same time. That shocked me. Yeah, like, so this is pretty amazing. And you know, I worship the ground that Stevie Wonder walks on. I always say that I'm just privileged to live on the same planet as him, but uh, signed to Motown at age 11. Isn't that un- unbelievable? Unbelievable. I love watching the old uh, recordings, too, of the young Stevie Wonder, right? Because here's this gangly kid standing up there, uh, belting out the songs and, you know, not weighs nothing, might, must weigh a hundred pounds soaking wet. Right. And well, he wasn't in the limousine, so he wouldn't be soaking wet. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> nice one. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. He, and, and confident. I mean, when you see those films of him, he, he looked like he'd been performing for years. He had this, the, um, you know, just a sense of who he was. It was amazing. Yes. And uh, he was given the name Stevie Wonder because he was born Stephen Hardaway Judkins. Uh, but the producer named Clarence Brown gave him that little uh, moniker, Stevie Wonder, and he stuck with it for his entire life. He dropped the little, though, after this album. Uh, but right, he was billed for this one as Little Stevie Wonder. And uh, amazing. What an accomplishment. Well, and and... What I love about the song is it's so sparse. You know, it's not your typical Motown. It's really a very sparse live recording and very live. You know, there's no auto-tune. It's not like it's been fixed up. It's no overdubs. It's just this wonderful... And the energy, when you put that song on to this day, the energy is unbeatable. Well, and Stevie Wonder's live performances are legendary, right? Even his new ones. Um an incredible talent because he can play just about everything. And, um, you know, I saw him, um, playing ain't no sunshine when she's gone. Did you ever see that recording? And, uh, Mm -mm. and I forget the name of the instrument he was playing it. It was some instrument that I would had never heard of, but he played it, you know, like he'd been playing it all his life. And he's that kind of guy. He's the kind of guy you hand an instrument to, and within two or three days, he's going to be better than 90% of people out there, right? So I have a question for you, because I know, I mean, I'm a fan, but you're a super fan. Do you have a favorite, and maybe it's an unfair question, but do you have a favorite song or favorite album by Stevie? Uh, well, Songs in the Key of Life. Oh, my God. Like, to me, that's his best album. Favorite song? Yeah, Living for the City. Mine too. I adore that song. Just what an incredible song and the message and the behind video it. for or the promo film is outstanding yeah i think living for the city's got to be my number one uh but then you know i love sir duke that would be very close to being number one as well sir duke is just such a feel-good song and um so many of them right superstition all uh, wow i was i was listening to i listened to the station from dundalk ireland and they played a song that I loved by him, and I forgot how much I loved the loved the song "Boogie on Reggae Woman." Oh yeah, that's a great song, Tony. <laughs> well, you know, and that's the thing with Stevie, right? He again uh, did all kinds of styles of music. His voice, incredible range. Um, it is unbelievable how high he can sing. He's one of those guys. You know, we talk about those people sometimes. Joni Mitchell was one of them. Stevie Wonder's another. Very tricky to cover Stevie Wonder well. Very, very hard. Do you ever cover him? Do you cover any of his stuff? 
Uh, not vocally, uh, but with Somerset Combo, uh, Rick and I play a couple of Stevie Wonder songs. I'm trying to think. We play, um, oh gosh, the name is escaping me now. You Are the Sunshine of My Life. We do that one, a nice jazz version of that. Um, I'll, I'll, it, you know what, it'll come to me after the, the name of the other one, but. I have to say, I enjoyed, by the Tony sends me some music sometimes, and I heard his version of, no, of Norwegian Wood which I really, truly loved. I thought, first of all, it was longer than the original, and I thought you guys put some really cool stuff in there. So I just wanted to shout out to, if you can find it on YouTube, folks, while we're seeing. Oh, yeah, that was a Somerset combo recording, and that was live at a gig, actually. Uh, It's really good, really good. But, uh, yeah, we do a neat cover of that, and and it works. You know, we were just fooling around with it, and and we said, wow, this this works for a guitar and a clarinet really well. It works. It's great. Um, and when Tony was here in my home, I got to play because he's a fan. We're both fans of a song called Superstition by Stevie. And um, Stevie Wonder did a song with McCartney called What's That You're Doing, which kind of incorporates the structure of Superstition, right? Yeah, it absolutely does. Now, what was on the charts this week? We know what was number one because that was Stevie Wonder. But what would, what else was on there? Talk about spoiler alert. <laughs> Just kidding. So the album charts was a was an interesting album chart because you could see it's kind of bridging rock and all stuff. Number five is the classic Alan Sherman, My Son the Nut. And for those of you who don't know Alan Sherman, you know, hello, mother, hello, father. He's he's hilarious. Um, Peter, Paul and Mary with number four's album. The number four album is Peter, Paul and Mary with an album called Moving. For some reason, it's in brackets. I don't know why, but hey, they're folk artists. Number three, the number on the, the, the album that Stevie kicked out of number one was Andy Williams' "Days of Wine and Roses," oh, wow. which I believe is a song about Keith Moon. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, here's an album, Tony. You might, you might be surprised that I grew up listening to, but my mother was a fanatic over the Trini Lopez and the Live at PJ's album. Um, I grew up with that album every Sunday. And number one, Little Stevie Wonder, the 12-year-old genius. And and I, as I said before, and I'll say it again, when the borders open and things get a bit calmer, we are going to Detroit. You've got to go to the Motown Museum, my friend. Oh, my gosh. Go. It's on my list. Yes, we have to do that. So let's make that happen. Now, uh, for our final part of the road trip, we're going to be talking about one of your idols, someone who I also like, but uh, I didn't discover until much later, but someone who you know a lot about. We have to jump ahead, though to August 26th in London in 2014. And uh, this is a really interesting one as well. Are you ready to punch that in? One second. I think I am. One second. Got it. All right. So let's jump ahead. August 26th, 2014. And we're going to London and we're going to go visit the Hammersmith Apollo. So here we go. So here we are for the final leg of our rock and roll road trip, and we are across the pond in London, August 26th, 2014, and this is a pretty special event uh, being put on by someone that you admire, like, unbelievably, isn't it? She's in my top five. Uh, I I love Kate Bush, just, uh, words fail me. (laughs) Yeah, she's pretty amazing. Like I said, I got uh, into Kate Bush a lot later than... You did, but wow, how do you uh, pin down a style, you know, for Kate Bush? She's, uh, I don't know what kind of artist you would call her. She's so fascinating. 
I don't know. She's 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 her own genre, really. I mean, other people have, I think people have borrowed from her style, like Tori Amos. And I love Tori Amos. So much, I don't say she's copying Kate Bush, but she's certainly in that vein. But but Kate kicked down those doors. She was very different from all other female artists up to that point. And, um, you know, so she's, she's doing her comeback. Her second, well, she only toured once prior to this in 1979, which was called the Tour of Life. Um, and she, it was a very small tour of Europe. And then she did some TV live stuff, which she had never, here she's performing live. I forget how many dates she did, but um, we we tried to get tickets. I, I went online, you know, and tried. I was willing to sell the house and fly to London. Couldn't get tickets, unfortunately. Um, tried. But she, here she made her comeback with a, a stage performance, which was more than just her doing songs off of an album, right? It was like a, it was like almost like a play, you know? Well, that's the thing about Kate Bush, isn't it? Is is so theatrical. Her songs they, they defy description. Like you can't just say, "Oh, she's a pop artist" or "She's a rock artist." Like she does a little bit of everything and very theatrical. Um, tells stories in her songs. <coughs> Excuse me. Very much like uh, Bowie in that way. I would think. You know, I, she reminds me a lot of the way that Bowie was too, with with just all the different uh, personas and. And, um, you know, when she her, did 22 shows, Tony, 22 shows, she sold out. Yeah, it's incredible. And they, supposedly they sold out within minutes, too. So they love her in the UK. I couldn't get tickets. And I know, I know, I have a friend on Facebook who lives in Los Angeles and he got tickets. Oh, wow. But it was, it was, it was, it was on par with trying to get tickets when George Harrison did his last tour in Japan. And this was, you know, pre-internet, so you had to do a phone and stuff. They sold out, you know, 15 minutes. But, you know, I couldn't get through the international lines. They were jammed. Um, but Kate Bush, the, the tour or the shows, uh, you know, were based or called Before the Dawn. And it was a story, right? Like, as I said, you're right. Like, it's not just, I mean, she did, she did a whole show. She had production, multimedia, 3D animation. She had a magician. She had puppets, dancers. Um, and then, I don't know if you know this or not, but when they released a live album from this tour, there was a video. And she spent three days in a water tank to film this music video. Oh, my gosh. And, I didn't know that, no. Yeah, she's she, and it's a great song, And Dream of Sheep. Um, oddly enough, unlike her first tour, there was no video released of this tour there was a live album that came out it was four album four album vinyl two cds but um no no matching visuals which which was a shame i kept praying that she would put it a blu-ray yeah (laughs) but she got her start uh so young right i mean she was writing songs as a teenager and then her demo tape uh there's a pink floyd connection with her demo tape right david gilmore guitarist pink floyd um heard her demo tape someone passed it along and he was impressed by it and he put up some money to get it more professionally done for her which I thought was kind of cool and he played on two or three of her albums he plays guitar and and there's a on the Hounds of Love album there's a sound effect of a helicopter which was given to her by David Gilmer that Pink Floyd had used uh, for the wall tour so there's all these Pink Floyd connections and she invented something 
that I would think you as a musician would really appreciate, right? Yeah. Now, are you talking about the headset microphone? Yeah. Yeah. yeah isn't that pretty cool? Yeah. So she was really the first artist to, to mainstream the, the use of headset microphones. You know, we always think of people like Britney Spears and Madonna and Jennifer Lopez. Uh, but Kate Bush was doing it well before they were. And her first one was like made from a bent coat hanger, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. Can you imagine? You know, just give me the coat hanger. <laughs> <laughs> but it worked. I mean, well, there's no way to do what she was doing without a headset microphone if she was going right. to sing live, right? Because of all the choreography and uh, the dancing and and the movement, you'd have to have a headset on. And, and I, I agree. And, and for her to, you know, and you know who went to her because he needed one was Peter Gabriel. Oh wow! He he kind of went. Oh, that's a good idea. <laughs> now she, didn't she uh, didn't she sing on a few of Peter Gabriel's albums as well? Two, she sang the backup on Games Without Frontiers, and she did that incredible, moving duet, uh, Don't Give Up, with um, the video, which was probably the most simplistic music video ever made, and one of the most effective, I think. It was. Have you seen it, where they're just hugging for the entire video? No, I'm going to have to check that out. It's just the two of them, and he, with the cameras on him when he sings, and then they kind of go around and they go up to her when she sings, but they're just holding each other. Because the song is about support from your friends, right? And oh, it's that sounds amazing. Yeah, it's a it, it, it's beautiful. I was surprised that she was the first female artist in the UK to have a number one song with something that she wrote. Yeah, that's astounding, I, isn't it? I, I I can't get over that as well. I thought Joni Mitchell, Carol King, Susie and the Banshees. Yeah, some <laughs> Yoko Ono. No, just kidding. Um, <laughs> 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 I love Yoko. I'm just kidding. I love Yoko. But I just was surprised to read that, that she was the first. And then when she did this series of shows, all of her albums went back on the charts in England. Yeah, oh, there were a bunch of them on the charts at the same time, weren't there? Yeah, yeah, because I was buying them again. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> now, you know, the other thing that, that uh, when you look at her career, right, like the... Uh, the unlikeliness of, like, her first number one was Wuthering Heights, wasn't it? Yeah, which was based on, of course, the book by Emily Bronte. Yeah. yeah. Did you know they share the same birthday? That's kind of cool. I Weird, isn't it? That I mean, that's weird. just kind of one of those weird, um, weird and, and her name, Kate, Kathy, first character, the name of the character in the book. Kathy, Catherine. Mm-hmm. There you go, yeah. But, uh, yeah, a song about Wuthering Heights, and it goes to number one. Like that is, who who would have guessed that, right? Well, it was and it was such an unusual song, and it came out. It wasn't disco. It wasn't pop. It wasn't um, punk. It wasn't new wave. It was just this very. And her voice. I mean, you, you, yeah. it, it was unlike, unlike anything anyone had heard. It was just this kind of, and I love it. I still that song to this day. You know, she re-recorded it years later because she said her voice had gone down on an octave so she re-recorded it at a very lower octave still a great song still a great song oh yeah she's a tremendous artist and uh, you know again how do you classify a song like uh, Babushka (laughs) great story great story oh it's a great story to that song and uh, the video is uh, hilarious I love the video where she's wearing the Viking outfit there (laughs) it's quite a good video Uh, (laughs) uh, I I, I, and, and for me I remember working in radio, and I remember I had a friend, and we listened to Hounds of Love before it had gone out to the 
stores that we got advanced copies. And it was unlike it, like running up that hill, cloud busting. It was just an incredible. It was a. It was life changing in many ways. It was a very defining album. And I, I, uh, to this day, I remember we had we had worked all day. It was Friday night. It was about ten, 10 o'clock at night. And we thought, let's just listen to the new K Bush album. So we went in the studio and listened to it. The lights out, and both of us were like, "Wow, this is kind of this is big," you know? No, exactly. Now, 2014 is not that long ago, so I'm I, I'm curious what was on the charts that week. Well, and I went. I thought I'd do the UK charts only because I think she's always had a much bigger following in the UK than she has in North America. Although she's always been much bigger in Canada than she was in the States. Um, number five was a. a, a you, I don't know if you've heard them, Richard and Adam. Yes, yes. Number number five with at the movies. Number four is my daughter Emily's favorite band at the time. I actually saw them in concert with her, the Gaslight Anthem and the album Get Hurt. And then here's what I love about the British charts. You got Richard and Adam, Gaslight Anthem, Dolly Parton. (laughs) Okay, so Dolly's at number three with Blue Smoke. Sam Smith is at number two uh, in The Lonely Hour. And number one is, of course, Ed Sheeran... I guess is it X or ten? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe X. Yeah, but isn't it amazing that Dolly Parton managed to get on the charts? And uh, oh, she's cool though. Dolly Parton is amazing. Well, listen again uh, on my bucket list. Dollywood, gotta go. But uh, yeah, yeah, same here. I'd love to go see that. I I love Dolly Parton again. I think she was a, a, a groundbreaker. She really, I mean, she wrote her stuff. She. You know, she did some, you know, Jolene all the way on, right? Well, and but I was going to tell. Well, and she kept her private life private, right? Like her husband. To this day, like nobody knows who her husband is, right? He's totally out of the public eye. Yeah, I could have fallen over. I wouldn't know. No. Anyway, sorry. What were you going to say? I was just going to say, you know, about the British charts. So Dolly's at number three. Have you seen the most recent top ten British albums? No. In the top five. Um, Barbara Streisand with her new album called Release Me and George Harrison with uh, While Things Must Pass the 50th anniversary uh, box set yeah that's exciting so, eh the re-release of that I know but I mean can you imagine that being in, I mean did, not, well Harrison's is in top 10 but Streisand didn't chart very highly in America I mean this is big news that there's two artists who are over 50 years in the business in the top 5 yeah know? that's pretty amazing pretty cool well, this has been a fantastic road trip, but I think it's time for us to head back to the present and then we'll see what the Beatles were up to as well. So you're ready to punch in the present? I'm always ready to punch in the present. <laughs> I like that, the alliteration factor. Thank you. Here we go. <laughs> and we're in. That was certainly one of the more varied road trips that we've ever done and this was our 21st one, but uh, very interesting. The first time that Kate Bush came up and uh, well, actually, the, you know, we've never talked about the who before either on one of these no, road trips. No, so uh, pretty cool. But uh, of course, we are always now taking a look at what the Fab Four were up to. So I'm going to queue up uh, the little stinger here and then you can tell us what the Fab Four were up to this week in rock and roll history. So here we go. Okay, Aaron, hit me with a little Beatlemania here. What were the Fab Four up to? 
Well, this is kind of the um, unpleasant Beatlemania piece for me for a couple of reasons. Two very big things happened around this time of August. August 27th, 1967, Brian Epstein, manager of the Beatles, was found dead in his home, drug overdose. And, you know, it was, a, it was an accidental overdose. It wasn't suicide and all that kind of stuff. But still, it impacted the world because he, he well, he changed the whole thing about management and all that kind of stuff. I mean, the first stadium shows and everything. But kind of connected is on August 29th, my second birthday, the Beatles performed their last ever live concert, paid concert. They would perform in 1969 on the rooftop of Apple. But this was their last official concert. And I've always hated the fact that my birthday falls on that date. <laughs> it's just, it's like really bad. <laughs> but they, it was in Candlestick Park in San Francisco. And it was really the beginning of the end. I mean, they knew that they couldn't continue touring in 66, as we've talked about, with the Philippines and the book and the, the record burnings and book burnings and the KKK and everything happened in that tour. It was not surprised that the Beatles just called it a day touring. The plus side was they spent more time in the studio and came out with things like Sgt. Pepper, The White Album, Abbey Road. So that's what happened this day. Well, that's right. And yeah, you're right. Things were never the same after Epstein uh, no. passed away, you know. And uh, he, I think, sometimes doesn't get quite enough credit from people who are not, you know, Beatles aficionados. But he was a huge part of the puzzle that put them over he the He was top. the glue. He really, he kept them moving forward too, you know. Well, that's right. And like you say, I mean, he really defined the role of manager, didn't he? Mm-hmm. And and for the artist, I mean, he really was out for the artist. He made a lot of money. Of course he did. No question. But unlike, say, Colonel Parker or Albert Grossman, he wasn't trying to exploit. He was very careful about how the Beatles were presented. Well, we know about the Philippines when he said no to uh, Marcos. Yeah. So... I mean, he, he really did take care of the boys, and, and you're right. You you hit the nail on the head. Things were never the same after he passed away. Well, and, and I, I even find it so interesting that he really didn't have any management experience before he took on the Beatles, did he? Um, I mean, other than r- running a record store, no. He yeah. didn't know how to manage an artist. And, and, and uh, you know, the famous story is that when he signed the contract with the Beatles, he didn't sign it because he said, if I don't sign it, you guys can drop me anytime you want which I think, again, shows some integrity. Well, that's right, because he had been to see them at the Cavern Club a bunch of times, right? And he, he yeah. loved those guys. Yeah, yeah. I always love the fact after they signed it, um, John Lennon said, right then, Brian, manage us. <laughs> <laughs> and he did. He, he, I mean, I think it was uh, his belief in those, in those four guys that got them to the point of uh, where they were. I mean, they had the talent. There's no question. I mean, it, it was a combination of Epstein, George Martin, and the four Beatles. It, it, it was the perfect uh, puzzle. That's right. The right people at the right place at the right time. Damn straight. Yeah. And uh, speaking of the right people at the right place at the right time, we are pulling onto your street here, my friend. So uh, what, a, what a great trip this was. And I cannot wait to do it again next week. Me too. I look forward to it. And in a couple of weeks, I'm going to be up in your neck of the woods. Oh, yes. We'll do another live show. So... That will be fantastic. Well, thank you for listening, folks. And Aaron, as always, uh, thanks again for a terrific trip. And uh, all the best. Have a great week. And I'll talk to you soon. Music for today's episode of the Wayback Music Machine podcast was written by Rick Denis. 
The show notes, chart selection, and Spotify playlist were created by Aaron Badgley. And the artwork, recording, editing, and sound production was done by Tony Stewart. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to tell a friend or two. And don't forget to click follow or subscribe on your favorite podcast player to get the latest episodes automatically. And we'd love it if you would leave us a review. You can also engage with the show by going on our website and leaving us a voicemail. We may even play your voicemail on an upcoming episode. Thanks for taking this road trip with us, and we'll see you next time on the Wayback Music Machine Podcast. Hey, turn the radio up. I love this song. The Wayback Music Machine Podcast is a Stewie Tunes production. It's not just business, it's personal. And Signature Theatre's new musical, No Place to Go. When dedicated employee George discovers his company is relocating to Mars, he must decide whether to go and uproot his family's life or embark on an unknown venture. Featuring DC star Bobby Smith, No Place to Go is an irreverent and humorous musical with an enterprising twist. Now playing at Signature Theatre through October 16th. Get your tickets at sigtheatre.org.